0: of the South Seas by James Norman Hall and Charles Nordoff Chapter 16 Anchored Off the Reef On the third day of the homeward voyage the wind died away, and in the middle of the afternoon it felt dead calm when we were less than a mile distant from the toll of Penanqui. With the exception of a small group of Papati traders, I don't suppose there are a dozen white men who have ever heard of the place, and those who have seen it or set foot upon it must be fewer still it lies towards the eastern extremity of the low archipelago and is one of the four small atolls all within a radius of thirty miles of one another on charts of that segment of the eastern pacific these four islands are barely discernible and panaki the last of them appears but a little larger than the dot of the eye in white sunday its english name the current carried us slowly along the northwesterly side of the island. It was intensely hot. Terriah, nephew of Maiti, the skipper, was sluicing the blistered deck, but the water streamed out of the scuppers, and in a moment the planking was as dry and as hot to the touch as before. He soon left off and took refuge in the whaleboat, which he covered with a piece of canvas. I crawled in with him, but the suffocating shade was less endurable than the full glare of the sun. Tane, the other sailor a man of fifty was below he had remained there most of the time since our departure from Ruterio, sleeping on a greasy mat indifferent to the cockroaches the place was alive with them by night or the copra bugs, which were a nuisance at all hours the stench from the little cabin filled almost to the ceiling with unsacked copra, was terrible and it was not much better on the deck i took shelter beside me who was sitting in the meager shade of the main sail. Presently pointing casually toward the shore, he said, "'You see him? What do you do there?' I saw the man plainly enough, now that he was pointed out to me, standing with his arms folded, leaning lightly against a tree. I was limited to a hasty glance through my binoculars, for he was looking toward us. But I saw that he was unmistakably white, although his skin seemed as dark as that of a native. He was barefoot naked to the waist and for another garment wore a pair of trousers chopped off at the knees. I too wondered about what a white man could be doing on an uninhabited island. Mati knew no more of the atoll than it was or had been uninhabited. It belonged, he said, to the natives of Nukatari which lay nine miles to the northwest. We could see this other atoll as we rode to the light swell, a splotch of blue haze and nail's breadth wide vanishing and reappearing against the clear line of the horizon. In two hours' time the current had carried us to the lee side of the island. It ran swiftly there, but in a more northerly direction, so that we were forced out of the main stream of it, and drifted gradually into quiet water near the shore. An anchor was carried to the reef, and we brought up to within thirty yards of it. With another anchor out forward, the schooner was safely berthed for the night. I went ashore with the two sailors for a fresh supply of drinking coconuts, but I gave no help in collecting them. A fire was going on the lagoon beach, and there I found the solitary resident frying some fish before a small hut, built in the native fashion. He might have been of any age between thirty-five and forty-five, was powerfully built, with a body as finely proportioned as a Polynesian's. His voice was pleasant and his manner cordial, as he gave me welcome. But a pair of the coldest blue eyes I have ever seen made me doubt the sincerity of it. I felt the need of making apologies for the intrusion, adding lamely, I haven't seen a white man in three months, and our skipper speaks very little English. I was about to look you up, he said. I can't say that I'm lonely here. I managed to get along without much companionship. But to be frank, I'm hungry for tobacco. There's none left at Norataka and i've been sucking an empty pipe since last november you haven't a fill in your pouch by chance i would have given something for his relish of the first pipe full or the fifth or that matter finally he said i imagine you are in for several days of pinaki you have noticed the sky not a sign of wind i can't offer you much in the way of food but the fishing is good and if you care to you are welcome to stop ashore i accepted the invitation gladly but as I walked back to the schooner for a few belongings and some more tobacco, I questioned the propriety of my decision. My prospective host was an Englishman by his accent, although like my friend Crichton at Tanso. He was evidently long away from home. He struck me as being a good deal of the Christian type, although he differed greatly from him outwardly. I remembered that Crichton, too, had been pleasant and friendly, once the ice was broken between us but the prospect of an early parting and the certitude of our never meeting again had been the basis for the friendship in so far as he was concerned this other englishman was not living on an uninhabited atoll because of a liking for companionship i was debating the matter of a return to shore when taine crawled out of the cabin to make preparations for supper and as he was a sufferer of elephantitis. The sight of his immense swollen limbs and his greasy, sweating body decided me. Papete was far distant, and I would have enough of obtained before we reached the end of this journey. Supper was ready by the time I reached the hut. It consisted of fish, deliciously broiled coconuts, and hard biscuit. Over it I gave my host an account of my stay at Ruterinio, and the unsuccessful experiment in solitude. "'Yes,' he said." They are rather too sociable, these natives. The people of Nakataka used to bother me a good deal when I first came here. I thought nine miles of open sea would keep them away, but they often came over in sailing canoes, a dozen or two at a time, when the wind favored, and they would stay until it shifted back into the southeast. I didn't encourage them. In fact, I made it quite plain that I preferred to be alone." THE ISLAND IS THEIRS, OF COURSE, AND I CAN'T PREVENT THEM FROM COMING DURING THE COPA-MAKING SEASON. BUT THEY NO LONGER COME AT OTHER TIMES. NINE MONTHS OUT OF THE YEAR, I HAVE THE PLACE TO MYSELF. BUT THEY ARE DAMNABLY INQUISITIVE. I DON'T LIKE KANAKAS IN THE AGGREGATE, ALTHOUGH I HAVE ONE OR TWO GOOD FRIENDS AMONG THEM. THE DYING FIRE LIT US TO BED ABOUT MIDNIGHT. I LAY AWAKE FOR A LONG TIME AFTER MY HOST WAS SLEEPING. WE HAD TALKED FOR THREE HOURS chiefly about the islands. In fact, all that he told me of himself was that he was fond of fishing. There was not a hint of breeze the next day, nor the next, nor the day after that. The sea was almost as calm as the lagoon, and the Poilly rubber lay motionless at anchor, as though frozen in a sheet of clear ice. Mitty, and the two sailors remained on board most of the time sleeping during the heat of the day under a piece of canvas rigged over the main beam and at night fishing over the side in dreamy contentment if they came ashore at all it was only for a few moments and they never crossed to the lagoon beach during these three days i remained the englishman's guest and although i was out of patience with myself for my curiosity it grew in spite of me what under the sun was the man doing here Evidently, he had not come to an atoll, as my friend Christian had, to do his writing and thinking undisturbed. Christian had books, a practical interest in planting, and a cultural interest in Polynesian dialects. He would muse for hours over a word in one dialect which might or might not bear a remote resemblance to some other word in usage a thousand miles away. The study fascinated him. As he once told me, it gave his imagination room to work in. I have no doubt that he made up for himself stories of the early Polynesian migrations vastly better than any romances he might have read. This other Englishman had no books, not so much as a scrap of writing paper. At least I saw none in his house, which was as bare as it was clean. There was a sleeping mat in one corner, a chest and some fishing gear against the wall picks and shovels in a corner, a few old clothes hanging from nails driven into the supports, and absolutely nothing else. How did he put in his time? Fishing was a healthy interest, but it was not enough to keep a man sane for a period of seven years. He let that bit of information slip in one conversation I had with him. He was not a -a taciturn chap. After our first evening, he talked quite freely about his early adventures. He had spent three years in northern Australia prospecting for gold, and he gave me an intensely interesting account of the Aborigines there, of their marvellous skill at following a trail no matter over what sort of country. I had heard that these people were biologically different from the rest of humankind, and that their blood would not cross with white blood. This was not the case, he said. He had known white men animal enough to take the Australian blacks for wives, and had seen the children which they had had by them. From Australia he had gone to New Guinea, still prospecting for gold although at times he sought relief from the disappointment of it by making expeditions with the natives in search of bird-of-paradise feathers. But gold was the word that rang through all his talk. Several times it was on the tip of my tongue to say, But there's no gold at Penaki. I was able to resist the temptation, remembering his remark about the damnable inquisitiveness of people of Natatanakinaki. Then on the morning of my third day on the island an incident occurred which made the situation clear end of chapter 16